Nicole Prousey is a sexual psychophysiologist and the founder of Liberos LLC, an independent research institute. This is Nicole Prousey. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. Uh, I'm here with Nicole Prousey. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Absolutely. Interested to hear what you're curious about. Okay. <laughs> you, you sound a little... Uh, wary because you have had people who um, have antagonized your research and I'm sure we'll get into that uh, but I'm not one of those people so um, I wanted to talk to you <laughs> I wanted to talk to you because you are uh, one of a handful of what are called I believe uh, sexual psychophysiologists uh, in yeah, this country. Tiny field absolutely <laughs> um, okay so just to lay the groundwork for people who may not know could you tell us what that is Sure. So psychophysiology is an area of research. There is even a society of psychophysiological research, and we're basically the joining of psychology and physiology. So we do ask people how they feel, but then we put sensors on them. It's kind of a trust but verify kind of science. I see. And how did you get involved with this? I imagine this is not something you dreamed of when you were in elementary school. Yeah, it's one of those you don't know it exists. And I honestly went to Indiana University um, for random other reasons and needed a lab credit. And I was looking through the catalog and I was like, Kinsey Institute, Kinsey Institute's here. What is that? Sex research. Oh, I have to do that. And so (laughs) that was my, just by chance, my first jump was into the fire. Uh, Kinsey is one of the very few places in the U.S. that does this kind of research. And my first study was looking at the vaginal vasocongestion of older adult women to this drug that they thought might have pro-sexual side effects. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that hit all the buttons for me of like doing tech and kind of, um, at the time edgy was interesting, you know, when you think, (laughs) and, uh, I was like, this is just such a cool way to answer questions. You know, you can get so much more with it. I felt. And now of course there are, uh, strengths and limitations as with anything (laughs) with that kind of approach. Yeah, I, I can definitely see how it would be interesting because it, it does take this subject of sex, which is, I mean, it's like one of the three things you're not supposed to talk about at a dinner party. And it brings it into a much more scientific setting. And, and I, I imagine that kind of takes the, um, uh, I, I don't know what you call it, the mythology or the, the stink off of, off of this subject. It does. Yeah, for me, it's more I don't talk about it at dinner because that's talking about work. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but sure, it's one of those things where, you know, one of the main areas of research broadly in my field is this idea of coherence. That's whether or not the body and the report match up or not. And it's often most interesting when they don't, you know, like the body and genitals are responding, but you're telling me you don't feel anything. And, uh, those places are so interesting to go to understand when you hear someone uh, saying something about sexuality that feels shameful or feels wrong or feel like, well, I can see why that might be because these things tend not to match up or people tend not to be aware of that kind of response. Then it has been really helpful for understanding a range of responses, you know, to kind of think about why is someone reporting that thing? I didn't think that could really happen or I didn't think that's right. Um, So I like that lens a lot. And so I, I wanted to ask you about a few, um, I, basically I have some things I want to ask you about sex in general and some about specific um, topics that you've researched. So I mm-hmm. believe the first, um, one, of, one of the first topics that I, I was an introduction to you um, was your work on porn addiction, which uh, for at least my sort of common sense view was that of course this is a thing that exists 
Um, of course, pornography is, you know, it's just flooding your brain with dopamine and people get hooked and it's like a drug, like gambling. Um, mm -hmm. That was not quite what you found. Could you tell us what you discovered? Sure. And this is all the fault of my doc student at the time, Cameron Staley, <laughs> who's since graduated. It was his dissertation project that kind of launched all this. And I don't think any of us doubt that people are worried about their porn viewing. You know, obviously there are people who report, this is a problem for me, or my partner's mad, or, you know, all kinds of different uh, challenges people can run into. Right. The question for me is, what's the best model for understanding that problem? So I'm also a licensed psychologist. So, you know, you have a patient, they come in, they say, I'm worried about my porn viewing. So, okay, <laughs> tell me more. When are you using it? How are you using it? And so, for example, one model to understand um, porn viewing could be that this is primarily depression and they're using porn as a way of distracting themselves uh, from negative ruminations. And that's nothing new. We've got great treatments for depression. We should absolutely use those, but not focus on the porn itself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, depression is one model. The, another model is this porn addiction model. And so for me, it's all a question of getting people the best treatment. You know, we've got to have the best model to know how to help. And the porn viewing just fails in a number of ways uh, from other addictions. There's some debate, you know, as to what you need present or not for something to be called an addiction. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the things we agree on are like Q reactivity, and uh, there are kind of two different types of Q-reactivity. There's kind of an immediate and then a, a more delayed. And so we studied the more immediate. That was the student's dissertation project. And just by chance, he happened to publish, I think, the first neuroscience study testing an assumption of the addiction model, and it falsified that tenet mm -hmm. of it. And I had no idea at the time what the space was like, and it just exploded with fear um, yeah. that yeah, over a research result. And as far as I know, it's been replicated, but not falsified. So that's stood the test of time uh, as a result. And then there's some other things as well, like uh, people, you have to, uh, to call something an addiction, you have to have negative consequences attributed to it. And that can't be due to a conflict you know, so that is my partner is mad at me is not uh, due to porn. If the partner is mad because their belief tells them porn is bad and you shouldn't be doing that. You know, that's more of a religious conflict than porn per se. And so a lot of what we also study is these claimed negative effects, um, erectile dysfunction being a good example. You know, a lot of people have claimed that's a common effect of viewing porn. And that's not true. No. So they just completed a review of 44 studies in that space and found no evidence for it. The main place where that uh, appears it could have some uh, relevance or truth to it, and maybe why the stickiness of that claim is it does appear to be tied to conservative values. So people who feel bad about their porn viewing because of personal values they have also report more uh, erectile dysfunction. Yeah. So there are a whole series of kind of studies like that, where we look at different uh, predictions, like if this was an addiction, then it should do this. If it was an addiction, it should do that. And so we kind of take those piece by piece and uh, test those aspects of them. And it just doesn't fit addiction models. Well, it fits some other stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, so I, for the most part, those folks who present with those kind of problems usually end up in depression treatment. I see. Um, and I'm curious, and this is something, I'm, you know, sort of a question about psychology in general, this you say it doesn't fit these models of addiction. Um, mm -hmm. it, isn't addiction something that, I mean, we are d defining? I mean, it's, you know, we're inventing this category, 
could, couldn't it be expanded to include something like porn or do you feel like that's just, um, there's another reason for not doing that? Sure, there's a, a raging debate about exactly that issue. This is, is it a you know kind of solipsistic uh, uh, slope where we end up calling everything addiction or we end up calling nothing addiction. You know, we got to draw the line somewhere and say, well, what do I think qualifies? And uh, to me, in some sense, it's a very functional question. That is, when does the label stop being useful? So for example, some uh, researchers who are a bit cheeky a few years ago published a study on friendship addiction and they took a, a questionnaire, I believe that they that some researchers have said uh, proves gaming uh, addiction, but they changed all the gaming words to friend, 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 and proved that friendships were addictive. And they did this very tongue in cheek to say, look, this is not a good standard uh, for defining something as an addiction because it's true of a lot of positive things. You know, <laughs> this is not a, a negative behavior by virtue of this questionnaire. So I love those kind of um, uh, cheeky attempts to say, you, you got to rein this in, you know, we got to draw the line or boundary somewhere because it needs to be useful, you know, to be a useful concept in treatment. Fair enough. Um, what about the difference in uh, genders? Like, do women have different responses to porn than men? Because a lot of the um, sort of fear or concern over pornography is coming from guys who feel that they have issues with it and who feel like it's it has some addictive hold on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's kind of a split depending on what type of studies you look at. So uh, when we bring people into the laboratory, uh, psychophysiologists, we're often showing them porn. That's usually how we uh, create a sexual response in the lab. And in that case, um, both men and women tend to produce this mixed uh, affective response. And what I mean by that is they view porn, they say, I feel sexually aroused and happy and amused and anxious, angry, you know, yeah. guilty. So the active uh, for both genders, a little bit uh, more mixed for women than for men, but not profoundly. So frankly, it's not, that difference is not always found. Um, but when we look in the literature that's on just how do you feel in general, you know, you view porn out in the world, how does that relate to your sexual satisfaction? How does that relate to your relationship satisfaction? And it appears reversed in the genders. That is the more women watch, the happier they are with their sexuality, the more pleasure they get, such as by higher orgasm consistency, the um, they report higher relationship satisfaction even. So it's not just restricted to sex per se. Yeah. Men tend to have the opposite. Um, especially at moderately high levels of viewing, which is kind of weird. There have been a few studies that found this weird curvilinear thing where like at really high levels, it's good for them for some reason. I don't totally understand that effect myself yet. Um, but my sense in that is, my guess is where that gender difference comes from is we've had a few studies now looking at uh, masturbation differences and like why people are masturbating. And my guess is because most uh, relationships are heterosexual, the majority anyway, uh, when there's a heterosexual relationship, there's almost always a desire discrepancy. It's rare that people are like perfectly matched. And so if it's going to be one or the other, it's more commonly that men have a higher drive than women. Mm -hmm. And so that means masturbation has a very different meaning for a man than a woman. So if a guy's masturbating, it's more likely to be, you know, I wanted to have sex, but she wouldn't do it. Oh. You know, she's, she didn't want it. So now I'm stuck over here doing this thing I'd rather not be doing. Yeah. So I'm very unhappy about my sex. Whereas the woman, you know, 
if she has a lower drive, well, the more she masturbates or wants it, the happier both people are. Cause he's like, that's awesome. I have higher drive and you're, you know, satisfying all these things. And he's telling her she's great. Everything's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) So I see it more as like this really a masturbation effect. And so when studies have controlled for masturbation, uh, they find they can no longer attribute the effects to pornography of the male uh, dissatisfaction. That is it. I think the masturbation uh, or slash porn, because uh, they're kind of one and the same effects that we see in guys are largely related, I think, to that uh, discrepancy. You know, it's uh, figuring out how to handle that in a heterosexual that relationship. A sense. That does make a lot of sense. Um, it's like, Parsimony, always parsimony. Happening. And then, sort of the last question I wanted to ask on this topic: What about um, just? I, I can see why there's a, sort of a resurgence and concern over this topic of porn with the rise of the internet. Where mm-hmm. I saw porn for the first time when I was in third grade. That's way too young, and I think that's true of a lot of people from my generation. And I don't know if we have any long-term like studies and what that does to kids, but I can't imagine that it's positive. Do, do we know anything about that area? So this is a really tough place because uh, you cannot randomly assign children to view porn. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, What that means is um, the kids who, and I always find this interesting because they always say kids who get exposed to porn, some clearly do, you know, their friend foisted on them or whatever, um, but the vast majority from their adult reports sought it out and also were masturbating to it, you know, pre-18, they don't wait till they turn 18 to start (laughs) masturbating. Um, And so what happens ultimately is like, we've got these two sides Um, I don't think anyone's saying it's good for children. I think some are saying like it doesn't have much of an effect um, or we should be doing sex ed to help uh, mitigate those. And others are saying this melts their brain. Um, They're going to be developmentally delayed. They're going to molest their sister, like just really extreme kind of claims. And the truth of the matter is we don't have data on either side because uh, it's the kids self sort so kids who tend to have a higher drive because right, the drive doesn't just appear at 18 yeah. uh, are more likely to have sought out pornography, to be masturbating, to be doing these other sexual behaviors. And so, you know, whatever comes with being sexually active earlier, including porn viewing, then gets blamed on porn. And I'm like, eh, I don't know if that's really yeah. what's happening to know if that was the case. We would have to randomly assign kids to view porn and see what happened to the kids who did versus didn't. And that's illegal. That's risky. That's, you know, like it's, it's just never going to happen. So uh, we don't have good data really to say, you know, is it the type of kid who looks at this stuff um, early or is it some the porn itself? I see. And I said that was my last question, but that just reminded me of something else I wanted to ask. Um, I've heard from women concerns about porn that this is something that uh, could potentially affect men's attitudes towards women that, uh, you know, a lot of it's very violent stuff and maybe that gets introduced into real life. Um, Your thoughts on that? Uh, There are quite a lot of data on this now. And there was an early study, I think the one that uh, tipped a lot of people off to worry about that issue was done in the mid 80s. And it showed people violent pornography and the guys who already had a tendency towards misogynist values, that is they endorse what we call rape myths. So that's, I bought her dinner, she owes me, 
you know, kind of uh, attitudes. When they viewed violent pornography, they became more likely to endorse those more strongly. And as you might imagine, those are associated with a wide variety of negative outcomes. <laughs> and so we said, okay, you know, for some people who view that, it might be a problem. And so uh, about three years ago, a laboratory tried to replicate that research and they did it with a pre-registered approach. Um, which is just a stronger approach where they said beforehand, this is what we're testing and we promise we will test only in exactly this. Yeah. Uh, and they weren't able to replicate those findings. And so it brings into question like, okay, well then is it just that the medium has changed? You know, maybe it's widely used enough that it doesn't have the effect it used to, like maybe it's just changed in that way or maybe the earlier research had some problem, we're not sure. Uh, I think the biggest issue for me is when they do content analyses where the, um, the videos are reasonably selected. So they, they work to make sure it's a random selection off of, you know, Pornhub's face page or something like this. Uh, the, there are two things they tend to study. So one is physical violence, the other is objectification. And so objectification is a little bit different. So it's just treating the other person as an object for your pleasure without regard for their pleasure. Uh, and violence is violence, you know, that's uh, kicking, spitting kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And violence is enacted against uh, men and women about equally when you randomly select pornography films. Uh, but objectification is not, that's strongly gendered. So that tends to be women objectified and men are not. And so that's what I would like to see more research on is um, I'm, because of those differences, like we maybe should be concerned about violence in films in general, you know, including Hollywood films, including foreign films. Um, but I'm especially curious, like if we focused on that objectification, you know, what might we learn about how that shifts attitudes or maybe causing problems, you know, or something we need to provide education for? I, I, yes. And I'm curious, have you seen that documentary, uh, Hot Girls Wanted, about the porn industry? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I heard uh, an interview with the, the woman who uh, directed that, and she was talking about how these girls, uh, they're turn 18, and then within a few months, they're doing porn where they're like eating their own vomit out of like a dog bowl. And she was, as describing this, she, she was being very careful to be like, oh, you know, I'm not kink shaming, you know, people can, you know, maybe that's great for some people, but there was part of me that was listening to that. Like, no, there's no universe with this is like, no, I think that's weird if that's what you get off on. Am I being too judgmental or are, are there some kinks where it's past, you know, just a fun uh, thing, I guess. Yeah. So we certainly have this in uh, doing sex therapy because we often have to toe that line is we, uh, our patients often are struggling with stigmatization already, you know, if they uh, like bondage and domination type play. And so we want to make sure that we're not contributing to that, you know, adding to their sexual shame, but we usually draw a line at safety. And so for example, uh, there are a lot of people who are interested in breath play that strikes me along the same lines as like eating vomit or something mm -hmm. um, is if somebody told me I like to be choked, I say, okay, let's talk about a way you can do that safely. You know, what about it? Do you enjoy Can you pretend to be choked? You know, if that, like, is that a good substitute? Um, because I think there, I, we're not a free for all and where I think most of us draw the line is safety concerns and, um, breath play is one of those, um, or, or choking. 
and uh, vomit eating, I think would fall in that as well. If someone told me they were doing that, I'd be like, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea. What does that do? Um, you know, or what uh, safety concerns might we have around that kind of activity? And to your point, the uh, it's an interesting, it seems like a catch-22 of people who are entering in the space because I, yeah, I'd love for people to be kind of fully informed before they get in about, you know, what are the potential outcomes? What are the norms in this space? You know, so what should you ask for? Do they know there's a union that represents them? Do they know? <laughs> um, and so I think you know, there, that union, I think is fairly recent as well. And so my hope is like, as this becomes more widely known, some of the protections that I think need to be in place for people who are entering the industry uh, will continue to rise, but they also, the industry needs to be allowed to do that stuff, you know? So they already comply with OSHA, which is an occupational safety health hazard. <laughs> so like they're already having to comply with OSHA. They're supposed to, I don't know what, where vomit eating falls in that. Um, it seems like it wouldn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, OSHA has a policy paper on, on vomit eating. Yeah. And so some of those things, I think, I think some of those are already regulated, but if people are not following the law. They need to be following the law. I see. And what, because you've studied, you know, people's sexual responses and you're looking at the brain, things like that. What is um, seductive to people about taboo? Like going back to that porn thing, so much of the content is like, oh, stepbrother or like barely legal. <laughs> like, why are these things, um, I don't know, so just like intoxicating for people? Yeah. So I have a theory about this that I don't have great data for yet because I have a colleague who studies scare houses. And uh, so they look at why people like to be scared. Like, why the heck do we go on Halloween into these things that scare the crap out of it? Like, why is it fun to be scared? That doesn't make sense. Like, it's a fear response. Yeah. And so I have looked at his research and thought, I wonder if that might apply in the porn space. So for example, there are these films is like woman um, F's horse, you know, like, oh, yeah. who clicks on that? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. it seems, seems like a lot. Um, but then I think, well, I wonder if they're not all watching it for the arousal process. Like, it's not that I find that sexually stimulating, but it's almost like going to a scare house. It's like, oh, what did she really, how does that even happen? You know, or the the way we rubberneck at uh, car accidents, you know, like we're looking at something, we don't really want to see it, but we're curious. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really interested in if some of those extreme videos that get produced uh, and some of that content might actually be playing into something a little different than sexual arousal. You know, I wonder if it's getting at whatever that is about us that likes to be kind of shocked, um, you know, anticipating something bizarre. And those are the things that end up getting repeated. You'll never believe what I saw. Um, that perhaps there's a different kind of response when people choose to click on the horse film. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay. Is that um, like when it crosses the line to um, like uh, someone near where I live got arrested recently. He was like a 30 year old guy for dating a 16 year old. And I saw the girl and she looked like she was 22 again, obviously totally wrong, but it was the reason I bring it up is because clearly this guy is not attracted to children, but he's doing this really dumb, risky thing for what reason? So there have been a few studies looking at decision-making under the influence of sexual arousal. 
<laughs> so I've done a couple of those studies, Dan Ariely's done some of these, uh, and it's an area of research called hot cognition. So that is, how do you make decisions when you're in an emotional moment? And so sexual arousal in this case being the emotion. Um, and if I had to summarize all the research in one sentence, that's probably about right. That is uh, sexual arousal makes you a little stupid. <laughs> the question is, how does it make you stupid? Like what shifts uh, when you're in that aroused state? And so I think uh, some of the debates are similar to debates we have um, with you know, substance or other hot cognitions. That is, is it just disinhibitory? That is, is it just like whatever would tell you to stop is going away? Or is it excitatory? You know, it's like you still have the inhibitions, but you're so aroused and excited that those overcome the inhibitions. Or is it some combination of those things? Like something's happening that both reduces my inhibition, excites me. Uh, and so this is bound to happen. I'm not even going to check her ID because uh, I'm just so excited to be having sex with this person. I find very attractive that uh, I don't care anymore. And so there's a, a lot of research on kind of sexual risk taking, uh, which that could be uh, classified, I suppose, um, as, as like, why do people do this when they know, they know the risk, you know, <laughs> this is not um, a surprise to them. You know, you need to wear condoms when you have sex with a new partner. People know that they have access to condoms and they don't put them on. Why? So like, that's an area of study. Uh, and so that's, I have no idea in this case of your, uh, your neighbor with a uh, sex brain. Not, not quite my neighbor, <laughs> but close enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, neighbor. <laughs> um, so that's my suspicion is certainly being in a sexually aroused state shifts decision-making. And we're still trying to understand exactly how it causes that shift. Um, but yeah, towards more risk in general. I see. Um, Shifting gears, another study that you'd done that I wanted to ask you about uh, was about penis size. And this is something that is uh, a source of anxiety for a lot of men. Um, what can you tell us? <laughs> so there have been a number of studies of penis size preferences at this point. And I collaborated with an evolutionary psychologist who's really interested in these ideas. And uh, I'm a methods person. And so I was really interested in the topic because uh, a lot of these previous studies said, how many inches do you like? I was like, we know people are really bad at estimating yeah. science. <laughs> like we, we should do a better job. We can do better. And so we ended up 3D printing a whole bunch of different penis sizes that varied in girth and length with the idea that people would pick these out and actually be able to handle them and that proprioceptive um, selection would be more accurate than them trying to estimate size. Uh, what we ended up doing uh, was creating what uh, I think I called on some comedy shows, the husband dick study, apologies for the language, but uh, what we mean is uh, women expressed a different preference depending on the expected term of the partner. So they wanted a slightly larger penis for short-term partners or one-time partners. Uh, and then smaller was, uh, it, which smaller was quite close to the average size of men for a long-term partner, uh, hence the, the name. I see. And, and <laughs> when, uh, when you say they preferred smaller for long-term partners, was that a case of uh, they actually wanted it to be smaller or they're saying, you know, I, I would be for someone who I'm in a long-term relationship with, I can tolerate this small. Uh, we asked ideal. So oh. we asked. Uh, yeah, a series of three questions that were like, for a one-time partner, you know, which of these in the basket would you prefer for a, uh, 
think our, we had a middle one that followed the pattern. I think it was like a one week. I forgot. We had a lot of debate as to how to frame the middle one. Um, and then the long-term, uh, you know, what's your ideal? I see. And uh, something I've heard from women in the past is that they feel some sort of social pressure to say that, oh, no, I don't care about size, uh, when in fact they do. Was that something that you all accounted for? Um, so we did ask them how important those things were to them relative to other features. And uh, this was largely my colleagues' construction. So we asked, like, relative to the type of car they drive, relative to being humorous uh, person, relative to being wealthy. And penis size ranked pretty far down there for most women. So uh, it wasn't at the bottom. I think like eye color was lower. <laughs> I think was, there was like two things that were lower. Eye color was one. Um, so it's on the radar, but I think in the scope of things, it's fairly low as far as the primary. I, I can imagine, um, you know, if you're dealing with something that's extreme either direction, so very, very small or quite large, um, that that may rise in importance, you know, in, in the list. Uh, but that when they were asked to explicitly rank them, it was fairly low in importance. I see. W was there any point during that study that you just stopped and said to yourself, I can't believe this is my job? Oh, my RAs did. Yeah, my research assistants got a kick out of it. They kept taking photos with the tilde of the guy. They named them all. <laughs> I guess. That's science to do. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to give them a little... I think, uh, you know, when you do sex research, obviously um, our field is not like others. You know, we end up talking about sexuality in a way that would be completely inappropriate if you're a schizophrenia researcher or something else. Um, and so I think there's some space for humor <laughs> there to let people play. Um, and they, they did they had a good time. <laughs> we had some research assistants who are, excuse me, research participants who asked to take photos with the models and stuff. I don't know. So it was a very funny study. Yeah. Uh <laughs> I had a question about something that uh, has just been like in the air and I don't know if it's scientific or not. And I was curious your thoughts on it. Um, have you heard of the book Sex at Dawn? Yeah, I have heard of it. I have not read that book, but generally familiar with the thesis. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, the, uh, for people who don't know, the thesis basically that we are not hardwired for monogamy. We're hardwired for polyamory. Um, do you have any uh, strong opinions on that either way? So I get this question a lot as a therapist with couples who think this might be a good thing for them. And they're like, should we, or shouldn't we? And I was like, man, I do not have data to say. Mm -hmm. So the, the challenge here, um, well, I should mention two things. So uh, one is there's definitely a lot more talk about non-monogamous structures. Like that's increased in media. It's increased in research. Um, people are studying people who engage in those a lot more but the actual frequency of them hasn't really increased. So when we look at nationally representative samples, it's pretty flat in terms of the people who are engaging in it, which I find really interesting. It's like, so now like the social stigma is reduced, but it's not promoting that choice. Uh, so I, I'm curious why that might be. But then the other issue is exactly like, should I do it? And here again, we've got a random assignment problem where I can't take a couple say, you're going to do monogamy, you're not going to do monogamy. And then we see how they go. It's, you know, people who are already in those relationships where we're saying, okay, you know, people who are non-monogamous uh, tend to have, uh, are less likely to have a secure attachment style, for example, you know, one of the studies. Mm -hmm. um, 
I don't know if that's necessary (laughs) to be in that, or if that's a problem, you know, maybe it's actually making their thing harder. I have no idea because, you know, we don't have those, uh, the ability to randomly assign and see how people do with it. So uh, I don't know that we'll ever really get an answer to like, is this a good idea or not? You know, or does it improve? I think uh, there's reduced stigma around it, but I haven't seen a lot of adoption despite that. And when you say adoption, is it, um, is it, do we know like what percentage of relationships are uh, non-monogamous? Yeah, there, I don't want to, I'll, I can get you the stats to share if you'd like after, I just don't want to misquote. It's still fairly low. My guess, uh, if I would double check the national representative study is they were still somewhere around like 6% or something that said they had some form of not. So still fairly rare. That that's interesting to me because, um, I was just out to dinner with a couple older colleagues uh, last night and like all of them were in some kind of open relationship. And I didn't think they were, uh, they didn't strike me as being unusual in that regard. Um, When we talk about non-monogamy, like in their, for their relationships, it was something along the lines of, oh, if my husband has one, you know, night or whatever, okay, fine. I just don't want to hear about it. But if he falls in love with someone else, then maybe tell me about it. Would that, is going back to what we said earlier about definitions is part of this uh, related to definitions that very well could be it may be that people are like the counts remaining low because people don't count that you know if they like the the hall pass idea that is you know don't ask don't tell just keep it infrequent if you ask that person are you non-monogamous they're like no i expect my partner to just have sex with me oh that well yeah okay we do that (laughs) you know but i don't identify because you know, we're not swinging, we're not polyamorous. Like, so I don't think I fit in that, you know, we call them CNM, uh, consensual non-monogamy uh, type of relationship. So it, it could absolutely be people just either not wanting to identify that way or not realizing that uh, that includes or could include them. Absolutely. Um, another subject I wanted to ask you about, uh, tantric sex. This is uh, <laughs> the idea of, you know, delaying your orgasm for, however long you can, I guess. Um, have, have there been any studies done on that? I know there've been a lot of studies recently about like meditation and its effects on the brain. This is, seems to be kind of from like a similar vein of thought. Has it been studied in the same way? I've been dying to get my sensors on those people. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they do, they claim that, or they'll say, you know, I have a three hour orgasm. I was like, orgasm is a reflex. That's not possible. <laughs> you know? So, um, so I'm very curious when they make these kind of claims, I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> like, what really is that? Um, not that it's freakish. It's just like from a science perspective, I'm really curious, uh, what they're experiencing, how that maps onto the, the physiology. And so we have studied in the lab something called orgasmic meditation, which is not Tantra, it's uh, quite distinct from that, but that's probably the closest thing I know of looking at uh, response physiology. So the Tantras, uh, you know, they, I think it's, there's a reasonable chance that some of the benefits they claim, you know, may bear out, you know, that is if if we uh, looked at some of the things they say Tantra helps in their general life. Um, with that may, may be the case. I just haven't seen those data, the physiology, we just know nothing about, and they, they need to be tested at some point. It's just, no, one's going to fund that work and the physiology work tends to be expensive. So I'm not sure when that would get done. (laughs) 
it, it would be it would be really nice if you and your lab studied that because there have been speaking of physiology there have been cases with meditation where you know monks will make claims that scientists find very um, hard to believe like oh we can control our heart rate at will and then it, they hook them up to sensors and it turns out it's true I mean it it would be very important I think if we could establish some of those results to be um, you know some of the claims you said that people with tantric sex make. I, I, yeah, I love finding contrarian findings. You know, it's like I, so I'm very skeptical of a lot of their claims, but man, prove me wrong. That'd be cool. <laughs> you know, like let's, let's do it. Totally. Um, I wanted to ask you about the people who have resisted your research. Um, and let's talk perhaps a good introduction to this uh, is the phenomenon of incels, involuntary celibates. Uh, these are very online, uh, mostly, I, I think it's almost entirely men. I think there may be female incels out there, but not the same uh, movement. And uh, I'm curious, uh, as we start to talk about them, one, is there something that happens to the brain when we're deprived of sex? Is it like being deprived of sunshine or friendship? Ooh, uh, that's an interesting question. So, um, generally we talk about sex, uh, and sex drive as kind of a use it or lose it phenomena. That is, um, people it's unique among things that are labeled drive, uh, because it doesn't have a deprivation state. That is, if I don't eat, eventually I'll get so hungry. I have to eat, <laughs> you know, if I don't sleep, eventually I get so sleepy. I have to sleep. Uh, that's hunger drive, sleep drive. Uh, if you don't have sex for a long period, it appears that the that drive actually reduces um, or the urge becomes less over time. But by that, I mean complete abstinence. So not masturbating either. You know, that'll prolong it. And so uh, I can see where you, know, you had a few different questions in there. Like the- yeah, Sorry, there's a lot of- <laughs> No, it's a, so that kind of- um, the sexual aspect of it, I'm not as worried about. I think if they're truly deprived, like they're also not masturbating, I think the drive is most likely to just decrease over time. That's, I think, the best data we have right now. Um, we've tried to study that by causing people to, you know, instructing them, like, don't masturbate for two weeks. They fail. Like, <laughs> if they're, uh, this is not my work as a German lab. And he was just asking me, he's like, how do I get him to stop? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, sounds like you know what you might find interesting? I talked to someone for this podcast a while back who spent 76 mm -hmm. days adrift at sea, and I asked him, did you masturbate at all? And he said that the moment he was on that raft, his drive went totally away. So huh. if you want people to not masturbate for two weeks, just put them on a raft. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, finding the right context. And so with the, the insult, though, appears to be something pretty unique and that Absolutely, I can see a loneliness being a feature of that, um, but they seem to have a really strong misogynist attitudes as well, like that that are unique to their population. So, uh, I think it's mainly some, mainly possibly some combination of like, yeah, not having connection, not feeling like other uh, people know that you're around, uh, combined with you know, and it's women's fault right. and. And women do all the bad things. So uh, yeah, I'd be, I haven't seen women in cells, but there's always an exception to these rules. <laughs> so it probably exists somewhere. Um, so, okay. And the reason I bring them up is because it seems like there's sort of like a constellation of people who generally don't like what you do. 
Um, mm-hmm. And perhaps they fall in that category along with, um, I think I saw like the no FAP movement is big online. These are people who are committed to being against masturbation uh, and they claim all kinds of miraculous benefits from abstaining like, uh, you know, higher testosterone, uh, you know, a smoother heart rate, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, are any of these, before we go into further detail, are any of these benefits from not masturbating real? Uh, so far as we can tell, none of those benefits from not masturbating are real. Uh, and in fact, there are several cases where they've made claims where the opposite is true. So for example, the testosterone changes um, testosterone actually increases in response to masturbation. So if you stop masturbating, your testosterone will go down, not up. I have no idea why they think it's the opposite. Um, <laughs> but, uh, my sense is like a lot of the reactivity there is, um, the, the explanation for it. So the way that this abstinence movement has been framed is, uh, you know, I'm gonna take back my masculinity. I'm going to conquer my masculine and I, identity. I'm going to become a man. And so, you know, you got this, uh, little psychophysiologist come, come along who says, eh, you know, actually it's most likely related to anxiety. Like, you know, sexual problems have long been strongly associated with anxiety, especially erectile dysfunction, strongly associated with anxiety. Of course it is, you know, like sex is anxiety provoking, especially when you're young. Um, and so that actually is kind of the opposite of what I think their ideals are, you know, that is, um, they might view uh, having an anxiety issue as being weak, you know, or actually uh, not strong. And so my sense is a lot of why this is so challenging to them is it's, uh, you know, kind of an affront to their masculinity, even though it's not intended in that way. It's like the, the real explanation is you're nervous, you're young, mostly, you know, you're, you're new to this, um, uh, you're very worried you know, about erections where, you know, I would say if you have, you know, failed to get an erection once in a while with a partner, you're allowed to be sleepy. You're allowed to be a little drunk. You're allowed, you know, like variation happens. Um, and I, you know, part of why this makes me so sad is I feel like we got so far as a field and getting people to think about erectile variability, you know, just like, eh, you know, we hope it's there. And <laughs> sometimes it's there easier than other times. Sometimes I'd hang around as long as we want. Um, but that's okay. And then 1998 came, Viagra came out and U.S. gets flooded with these ads. It's, you must be hard all the time on demand. And we're like, oh no, you know, like all our work. Um, and so the attitudes, I think, swung back about that time where it's like, okay, now we need to be, you know, being masculine means always being hard right on the spot. And so there's some something in those social movements, I think, that's been impacting the response to our research. I see. And uh, so I brought up incels, the no fat people. Uh, is there anyone I'm missing? Um, I mean, I think maybe like religious conservatives who are anti-porn um, probably don't like your work. Um, is there anyone in this whole uh, sort of framework who seems to be uh, wanting to shut down like the exploration of knowledge? Anyone I'm missing? Uh, I think the ones you hit are, there are a few papers written about, um, one paper was even called strange bedfellows. So it's the collaboration of like anti-porn feminists, religious, uh, zealots, and then now these, uh, sex addiction coaches that have popped up or porn addiction coaches. Um, and so they all have kind of different reasons 
you know, for wanting to advocate for their position, but they've come together in this one issue where otherwise they would not have anything to do with each other. <laughs> you know, like the, um, a lot of the anti, uh, anti-porn coaches um, have from surveys, you know, kind of misogynist attitudes that would not work with the feminists. Yeah. The religious folks, you know, are advocating against abortion, which would not work with the feminists. But on this issue, it's okay. You know, we're just not going to talk about those other things. So I think those are the three primary groups. I see. And uh, what has been your experience like? Um, I don't know if you'd call it battling those groups or fighting for your right to do science. Yeah, uh, it's changed over time and it's definitely pretty specific to the porn research. So, you know, I do a lot of work on orgasm physiology, genital vasocongestion. Um, nobody seems to care about those things. Uh, even though they're directly related to the porn work, they, I think they don't see them as related. And uh, so the, uh, the response has been varied. Um, so there, it goes as far uh, on one side as violent threats. So, you know, I get death and rape threats. I've had my address posted online multiple times as have my female colleagues. Yeah. Um, there are some uh, folks there in five countries now uh, where female scientists who study porn have had to either like send law enforcement to their children's school because these anti-porn people were threatening them and putting pictures of their kids up. Um, people have put up photos of their uh, wife in one case uh, where to me, it seems like very focused on the women, even when it was a male scholar, they went after his wife. Say so like, we're going to rape your wife. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's shocking. Uh, I, I had no inkling that research, you know, was it's like, if you don't like research, you can do your own research. You can do your own talks. Um, you know, first amendment, everyone's welcome to say they don't like porn. Uh, but this took on something different. And so now there are a whole series of studies that are actually coming out on those groups where people are uh, studying like the Reddit communities of uh, incels, nofap, pickup artists, you know, this whole thing to see how much overlap there is between those communities. Uh, or there's another study that's looking at YouTube videos of nofap to see what their claims they're making about male sexuality and whether those are uh, true or false, <laughs> gently. Um, and I'm doing some research in that space as well, just uh, to try and understand like, where is the violence coming from? You know, like, what is that about? Is it really just the masculinity issue, which a lot of people think is what it's related to? Um, you know, is there something where it's really like one or two people who are kind of spurring all this? And we just, you know, it's not totally clear at this point, but it does seem to be something that's very, um, primarily targeting women who do research in that space. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, uh, on, uh, in your personal life, have you noticed um, people sort of forming judgments about you? Like, you know, you're a woman who studies sex for a living. And do people mm -hmm. ever have in their head like, oh, this, this chick must be a freak. Like, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it's funny. So there have been some studies of um, assumptions about sex researchers uh, in general, so not specific to porn, where people do make those assumptions about our job. Um, you know, I always like to joke I was doing an orgasm study at one point, and I think I had six subjects through one day, and I got home, I was like, dang it, everyone's having orgasms but me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is work, 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 all day. Um, so I, I realized that there are 
assumptions people make about those who study in this space and that they're not entirely wrong in terms of like sex positivity. I think our field tends to be more sex positive, of course, you know, we are uh, more accepting in general of kind of sexual variability, more likely to identify as non-heterosexual or straight. Um, but the, the other thing that I see more specific in my case is people think I'm in porn. And so they've gotten uh, photographs of me stolen from personal websites uh, where they say, this is her on a porn set. This is her at porn award shows that I've never been to. I've never been in porn. And so my, my sense is that that's their method of trying to other me and say, you know, either I'm biased, you know, and so I'm unable to conduct research in this area because I'm actually in secretly in porn or secretly paid off by porn. Um, or it's that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people who perform in porn face a lot of stigma and assault already, you know, people who write will write them and say, you know, you dirty this and like for no reason, just to be terrible to them because of the job that they're in, even though it's legal. And um, so my sense is they know that, you know, and so they, if they don't like the research you're doing, trying to associate you with this group that you're not a part of to, uh, to get that stigma on you as well. And so that to me has always been a tough tightrope because I don't want to do to the sex workers what's you know, been done to, to me or to them yeah. um, by saying, I'm not one of them, um, you know, because I don't want to further that. Uh, I happen not to be, you know, <laughs> but I, I get why they're doing that. You know, they want to make it look like, um, oh, yeah, she's a dirty, you know, whatever, too. And uh, as a way to, to say her research can't be real, you know, our masculinity is still intact because she's just a, a liar and a prostitute or something. So normally I don't like to go that much longer than an hour here. Um, what I would like to end this on a somewhat more positive note than all the people who don't like you. So <laughs> um, speaking of sex positivity, um, perhaps, and you mentioned uh, you, know, you are also a therapist, um, perhaps something that would be helpful for people listening to this is how uh, they can have better sex with their partners. And um, I know it's a very broad topic, so maybe narrowing it down uh, would help. Um, let's start with something like communication during sex. It strikes me as weird if you're going a half hour, an hour in the bedroom with someone to not say anything to them. Um, what, uh, how does that um, have an effect on people's uh, intimacy, quality of sex. That's interesting. Talk during sex. So I, I like to joke about sex face sometimes. Like people go and when they start having sex, like, okay, we can't talk anymore. It's sex time. You know, it's like, we gotta put on the mask and have sexy face. Um, so I actually don't know a lot of research about talk during sex, dirty talk, but not like the communication uh, during the act itself. Um, so there's uh, a fair amount of work on pillow talk, which is like the after talk. Uh, and this is completely unsurprising that is a couple who tend to report being more satisfied in their relationship, uh, also more sexually satisfied, which is kind of interesting because it's not the sex itself, you know, it's the, the talk afterwards. Um, as a general rule, um, we usually say if you have negative feedback to give or some corrective, uh, to not do it in the moment, uh, but to try and wait until a time when you're not actually in the sexual situation. 
And uh, it's to help reduce defensiveness in part because uh, sex for a lot of people is very private. You know, it's not something they talk with a lot of people about, or at least not in real detail about how they're really feeling. Uh, and so it's tough to give negative feedback, you know, or say, hey, I didn't really like what you were doing or that um, that was a little uncomfortable. Obviously, if you're in pain, you should talk at the time that hurts, <laughs> you know, be, be explicit. Um, but I think, yeah, that uh, is a good thing we do generally with couples and therapy is, you know, if you have negative feedback, you know, at the moment, oh, really, you know, that is not <laughs> the kind of interaction you should have with with your sex partner, if you can uh, hold off on that until a more appropriate time when they're more likely to be able to receive that feedback and uh, have a discussion, it's probably a good idea. And what about, um, I'm only 26, the idea of being with the same person for 20 or 30 years is just unfathomable to me right now. But for people who are in that situation, how do you spice things up? Novelty comes from everywhere. <laughs> so um, that idea uh some people have for example they say oh gosh yeah we finally had to get some toys i hate when i hear that i was like why didn't you have toys when you started <laughs> so now it's desperation you know there's no dildos until we're at divorce court um so <laughs> i think that's part of is just like building in the expectation that you're going to explore things with your partner as you continue to grow together and you know they're maybe times, this is often when I see couples, you know, someone's exploring something, the other person's like, I don't know about that. You know, <laughs> like I'm getting a little nervous where they're going. Um, but just continuing to have those conversations about, uh, you know, what's novel to you. And the challenges, those uh, lines are very different by different couples. So uh, there used to be this book, if it's still there, it was like 101 Nights of Great Sex. And what I loved about this book is every two pages were like stuck together. And so you'd tear open these two and it would have some little thing between the pages. It's like, okay, this is, it's a feather. We're going you know, <laughs> to a little cheesy. Right. But um, what it really helped with, I think is folks who feel a little stuck, you know, they're like, I just, I don't know where to get the novelty anymore. You know, we don't want to swing. We're not comfortable with that. We don't want to open our relationship. We don't want that kind of novelty. Um, but to keep things exciting, how are we going to do that? Um, you know, that, that may be toys, that may be positions and a whole lot of that is just being able to say that to your partner without worrying about their judgment. You know, that if I say something that you find disgusting, you're not going to make a uh, vomit face and, you know, tell me I'm a pervert. Oh, okay. I don't think that would work for me, but I totally see why you might like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so I think wrapping up here, one of the things that uh, we talked about early on in this conversation was, um, you know, a, a lot of the sort of fears around porn, um, fears around the, the kind of research you're doing, a lot of it is related to anxiety around sex. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as you mentioned, it can be hard for guys to say, oh, this you know, when you're supposed to be the, the conquering dude in the bedroom to be like, actually, this person is very attractive and is making me nervous. Um, mm -hmm. How do you, uh, how do you approach anxiety around sex and how do you reduce it? Sure. I think there are broadly two forms of anxiety that get studied uh, with respect to men and sexuality. So one is kind of the threat of performance failure and the other is performance consequences. So 
uh, one may help to think about like, what are my anxieties about? You know, am I mainly worried about how I'm going to be perceived in the moment, you know, that I'm not uh, sexy enough or I'm doing the skills poorly, you know, is it that kind of a concern or is it more the consequences? Like I'm worried whatever happens, she's going to go tell somebody or, you know, make fun of my penis or, um, you know, I'm risking pregnancy, but I can't get hard when I have a condom on, you know, so these kind of things is to think like, um, you know, which of those kinds of anxiety is active for you? Maybe uh, one thing to try and nail down, like what exactly is it that's causing you anxiety? Uh, And then if it is partner related, you know, so it's something that's happening in the moment, I know people hate to hear it, but guess what? You got to talk about it. (laughs) So uh, it's that uh, a lot of uh, power of the anxiety is reduced just by saying, you know, honestly, uh, you know, you're so hot. I'm really, frankly, kind of nervous right now. I'm not sure everything's going to work. I hope that's okay. Um, and if that person is a good partner, they'll say, totally, it's no pressure. You know, why don't we back off for a while, whatever that is to give you the opportunity to just say like, uh, you know, guess what? Penis doesn't work hundred percent of the time, hundred percent of the way it varies. Um, and just to be able to have that conversation and say, you know what? I'm actually kind of tired. <laughs> you know, it's not that I don't like you. I just, uh, it's been a long day um, to be able to say that and not have to worry that they're going to, you know, assume it's a judgment of them or assume, Oh, you must be gay. Or it's like, you got to have a good partner that you can say those things to, uh, to help reduce the anxiety in the bedroom. That's what it's all about. Um, great. Well, if my parents are still listening, I hope you enjoyed, uh, <laughs> Nicole, I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I hope we can find an excuse to chat again at some point. Um, But thanks for your time and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Thank you to Nicole Prowsey and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.